Hey, what's up? And welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. A quick announcement that we have a very special bonus of write-ins for this month. We've got storytellers working on manuscripts, TV scripts, treatments, plays, and so much more. And the best part is we're surrounded by each other's creative energy and are so motivated knowing that everyone is getting work done. I like to think of it as a virtual creative co-working space where you can write your stories from the comfort of your own homes in your PJs with all of your favorite snacks and beverages. Our participants have been killing it with their work in progress, and they're always so pumped about our next write-ins because they know they're actually making progress with their work. And it's an absolute understatement when I say that I am so dang proud of each and every one of them for showing up and doing the work. I normally hold live stream write-ins once a month for an hour, but in March, we are having three different write-ins for two hours at a time. These live streams were created to help keep you accountable and productive with your writing and they're exclusively accessible for our Patreon family in the green tea tier and higher as a thank you for supporting our show. Please pay special attention to the time zones. The first write-in is this Saturday, March 7th from 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our second write-in is happening immediately the next night on Sunday, March 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the third and final write-in of the month is on Monday, March 9th from 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. In case you did not know, this also comes with early access to our extended conversations with guests like Akemi Don Bowman and Linda Camacho from Galt and Zacher Literary Agency. Over the next several weeks, we're uploading the early extended interviews featuring Molly O'Neill from Root Literary, Marie Rutkowski, Stacey Lee, Samira Ahmed, Sarah Zar, Daniel Jose Older, and more. You also get access to all the extended conversations from our archive and the Patreon-exclusive video playback of my interviews with Mindy McInnes and Shannon Messenger, where we talked about publishing, marketing, money, and so much more. To join us, head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and sign up for the green tea tier or higher. Can't wait to see you there. I am so excited to kick off the first episode of 2020 with Cassandra Clare. And before we jump right in, I have some exciting Patreon news to share. We spent the holidays going over all of our Patreon benefits for each tier and kept only the ones we found most fun or valuable for our super storytellers. We added new benefits and also added a brand new tier based off of popular requests and suggestions from our community. A heartfelt thank you to you wonderful patrons who shared your input. I so appreciate you all. Okay, so first things first, we now have four tiers instead of the previous three tiers and we switched up the names of the tiers. A fun fact, these tiers are named after my favorite teas and arranged in order of the lowest to highest caffeine strength, beginning with the chrysanthemum tea tier, then upwards to the green tea tier, then another level up at the oolong tea tier, and finally our brand new and highest level tier called Pu'er tea. By the way, that tea has this delicious earthy flavor for any of you who are tea lovers just like me. I highly recommend it. Now back to our Patreon. I'd love for you to head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea to check out our revamped Patreon page with all the new details. 
For now, here's a quick update about one of the benefits we added that's exclusive for our green tea tier, our oolong tea tier, and poor tea tier. Patrons in those three tiers get to join me for a live virtual write-in. And the very first one is happening on Saturday, January 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And that's 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. This is only available to patrons in the green tea tier, the oolong tea tier, and the puer tea tier. I'm pretty sure at this point you're kind of wanting more details. So what does this all mean? So once a month, I'm setting aside an hour to record myself live as I work on my writing. And you can tune in from the comfort of your own home have your laptop or notebook and pen all set up so that you can take advantage of this writing session by joining me and fellow patrons. Seeing someone actually sitting down and doing the work and being able to engage with our Patreon family in the chat box is such a great way to motivate yourself to show up and move the needle with your work in progress. Patrons can update each other about their progress or even talk about the kinds of goals you're trying to set for that one hour, and we can all check in at the end to see if we reached our goals. If you'd love to participate in our first ever virtual write-in, it's happening on Saturday, January 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And be sure you're signed up as a patron in either the Green Tea Tier, the Oolong Tea Tier, or the Poor Tea Tier. Head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea to sign up. If you're already signed up to our Chrysanthemum Tea Tier, you can adjust and level up to any one of those three tiers that I mentioned earlier to join me for the live write-in. I'm so excited to see you there and to kickstart the new year in a super productive way. Again, that's patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. Now on to today's conversation, we have award-winning author Cassandra Clare of City of Bones, the first book of her Mortal Instruments series, the Infernal Devices series, the Dark Artifices series, the Magisterium series, and many, many more novels. Cassandra and I kick off our conversation chatting about her recent travels around Southeast Asia, and this will be a very fun part of the conversation for those of you who love to travel or would love to travel one day in the near future. We continue to talk about her storytelling journey and touch on ways to bring in income while you write your novel. We dive into the inspiration behind her first novel, City of Bones, and discuss the emotional side of writing. Towards the end, we talk about querying, the importance of reading through your contracts and being aware of your legal rights, and how to best manage stressful deadlines while still taking care of yourself. Later, she shares how to prevent yourself from giving up on your career when you're feeling down, and she shares her favorite writing techniques that'll help you reach your writing goals. Now let's dive right into the very first episode of 2020. Hey everyone, oh my gosh. We have the one and only Cassandra Clare with us today. Cassandra, how are you? I'm very jet lagged. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. I just got back from a month long trip through Southeast Asia with my husband. And we just arrived about oh, 25 hours ago back oh. on the eastern seaboard. So to me, I think it's like seven in the morning. I'm not totally sure. So I'm very happy to be here, very happy to be talking to you. But if I say anything that sounds like it's sliding off into not English, that's why. Oh my gosh, I am so excited right now. You just opened a whole can of worms because I love traveling number two, obviously Southeast Asia, my mom's side being from Malaysia. Can we please touch on the traveling? Where'd you go around Southeast Asia? This is so exciting. Well, I started in Cambodia and then I took a boat down the Mekong into Vietnam. 
and traveled up through Ho Chi Minh City and into Hoi An and northern Vietnam, then up into Laos, which is beautiful, and then into Thailand and ended up in Bangkok, hit it, grabbed a couple of days at the beach and came home. Oh my gosh, Cassandra, I am drooling with jealousy over here. Serious wanderlusting. So I've been backpacking with my girlfriend. We were in Asia and Southeast Asia for about three months with one carry-on luggage. I love to show this off. Wow. All our dude friends are like, wait, how were you able to squeeze both of you ladies squeeze into one carry-on. I'm like, oh yeah, it was no problem because we had no problem washing our clothes too or wringing it dry because it's so warm there, as you know. So it dries mm -hmm. within a couple of hours or we'll just buy like new shirts because it's 50 cents for a gorgeous, cute shirt. So Cambodia, we went to Cambodia as well. Where were you in Cambodia? Oh, that's fantastic. So we were in... We started out in Siem Reap, yes, and then we went down to Phnom Penh and south of there into sort of the rainforest area. The Sihun I'm not sure I'm going to be the greatest pronouncing this, but Sihanoukville, which is the beach, and then a little bit north of that, there's this beautiful rainforest that used to be like pretty badly like logged, but has become a nature preserve now. And so we went there to kind of take part in what I wanted to see animals. Elephants, sloths, monkeys, and all of the cool stuff. And also the place that we stayed, which is like a tented camp, like Wild Lodge, you can put the money that you give them goes towards their anti-poaching efforts, which is really fantastic. So we were able to like ride out with them on like anti-poaching patrols and disassemble like snares that had been put out to catch animals so that they could help preserve the uh, animal population and help it rebound. Was it you or your husband or both of you doing research or you heard from a friend who directly went to these places to visit? It's interesting because like we're both very interested in animal preservation and anti-poaching. So we had been about a year and a half ago in Africa and we were at a camp that does elephant like repopulation and elephant preservation. And they have their own sort of like house band of elephants that hang out there. Like they're free to come and go, but they come back every night because they know it's a safe place for them where you know there aren't predators. And so you can hang with the elephants. It was really funny. Like one day they were like, do you want to have like tea out on the Delta? Because we're in the Okavango Delta in Botswana. And so they put out this really cute on a table, like in the middle of like nowhere, like this tea. And when we get there, the elephants had showed up and decided it was their tea. Oh my God. They were going to have it. <laughs> so there's, and we were like, and they were like, oh, we're sorry. And we were like, no, this is the best. Like <laughs> elephants are like eating the cookies and they're drinking the tea. They're literally picking up the teacups and dumping them out. What? Well, they're so smart. It was so awesome. So I got to talking with one of the guys who ran that camp and he told me, about this place in Cambodia that was being opened by someone he knew. And he was like, you, you know, if you're interested in, you know, animal preservation and anti-poaching, you should go there because it's going to be, it's the first kind of thing they're really doing like that in Cambodia. So I just kept track of it. Basically, I am an obsessive, like travel weirdo. Like when I am, have downtime from writing and reading, that's the thing I do is I like research places to go. Yes, you're my kind of girl. Yes, I'm so happy to hear that you love traveling. Although I have no idea how you and your girlfriend managed to do this with one bag. <laughs> I had two bags for me. Oh my God. <laughs> 
I have not learned the great wisdom of how to pack light at all. All I do is like I go with stuff. And then if I want new stuff, I'll throw away the stuff that I already have. <laughs> but I pack like cheap clothes, basically. And, you know, like I will definitely buy clothes when I'm in a place. Yes. Uh, and I know what you mean. Like when I was in Vietnam, I busted my shoes and I was like, oh, crap. So we go into Hoi An and I was like, I'm sure I can buy like an inexpensive pair of shoes. And I walked into a store and they were like, oh, well, well you know, we'll make you a custom pair of shoes. And I was like, oh, no, that's probably really expensive. And they were like, it's 10 bucks. I was like, it'll probably take a long time. And they're like, we'll give it to you tomorrow. Oh, yes. I love that you did end up giving them business because when you think about it, it's not just cost effective, but you are helping to support families who rely on that money. That does mean so much for them, even though it's cheaper for us compared to the American prices, right? Yeah. What they're earning is so helpful to put food on the table, put their kids through school. Like it's no joke. And that's why, you know, outside of it just being like, oh, saving space and stuff. It's wonderful if we can save those dollars to put towards their local businesses. If there's so many tourists might as well help to give back to their community and like keep their money there so that they can use it towards what they need. You know what I mean? Oh, that's a great way of thinking about it. And also these are skilled, these are skilled artisans, you know, I mean, we have in many ways lost a lot of those talents and skills. Like if I wanted somebody to make me shoes in my area, it's would be cost prohibitive, but also nobody knows how to do that. You know, exactly. Like, and I shouldn't talk, I don't know how to sew a pair of curtains, you know, but I think that we have (laughs) lost like a lot of hands-on skills that should be respected. Yes, absolutely. I love that you said that as well. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy you love traveling. You have no idea. I'm such... I love traveling and I have (sighs) never been to Malaysia. I'm so jealous. I've been to Indonesia, the Philippines, you know, now all over, but I wanted to do a separate trip to Malaysia and I really, really want to go. Listen, I'm so glad that we are at least meeting now because at first I was like, shit, I should have... I wish we got to chat earlier so I could have tried to convince you and your husband to squeeze Malaysia in. But now that I heard that you would love to dedicate a separate trip, I am so happy now that we've met and I'm going to send you an itinerary. Sorry, lady, but you are going to be getting bombarded. (gasps) Yes, I would love that. Because my mom's (laughs) side is still from Malaysia. My grandpa's there. My family visits multiple times a year. My dad, who's actually Taiwanese, now he's totally bought into the Malaysian culture. And he's like, I would actually rather retire in Malaysia over Taiwan, like his own home country. He was like, I'd I'd rather hang out in Malaysia. Like that's how much he loves it. My family's from Penang. That's more up North. Oh yeah. Wait, you're familiar with Penang? Well, I was in Singapore recently and you know, the Penang Chinese influence in Singapore is really strong as is the Malay influence. And when I was in Singapore, they're so strongly influenced by Malaysia. They're so close to Malaysia. That was what made me think, wow, I really want to go to Malaysia and like dedicate like a singular trip. Also, the food is really good. Oh, don't even get me started. I'm so hungry right now, even talking. Okay, so my girlfriend, Moonlin, ended up partnering up with a Malaysian chef here in New York City, and it's for a Malaysian restaurant. That's awesome. It's amazing because the chef, coincidentally, is from the same hometown, Penang, as my mom and grandpa, and so happened that she is a daughter of multi-generations of restaurant owners, and the restaurant that they had, coincidentally, my grandpa brought my mom and aunts to after karate and ballet class when they were growing up. So it is delicious Malaysian food here in New York that you could actually find that I'm used to growing up eating when I'm visiting grandpa in Malaysia. And it's amazing because my girlfriend literally before we started talking brought home my favorite blotch on chicken for me to eat. I was like, (laughs) yes, please. It was so good. 
good. Oh my gosh, I'm getting so excited. All right, you know what? We're going to have to have a whole separate conversation about this, okay? Yes, I want to hear all about this restaurant. I want to eat all the roti canai in the world. Unfortunately, they don't have roti canai in the restaurant. <laughs> I'm like, how do you not? But you know what? Their kitchen is so small. So what they're doing for these two young ladies, I'm like, it is pretty badass and remarkable for how much they're producing out of such a small kitchen in a Manhattan space. I'm sure I will be happy to eat any of it. What is that? The Malaysian pancake? It's like apam balik. Oh my gosh, that's apam. Oh my God, my mom loves that. So delicious. I am so proud of your palate. You have no idea. I will eat pretty much anything. The only thing that I have balked at is when I was in Cambodia, we went out and there were like fried tarantulas and I was like, I can't. It looks like a tarantula. I can't do it. You just opened another can of worms, girlfriend. I'm like, I am an entomophagist, which means I enjoy eating bugs. I know it sounds gross for a lot of people, but I just think it's super cool. And I actually learned it from a French forager. He's actually from born and raised in Belgium, moved to France, then moved to LA. And I surprised my girlfriend with classes from him. My girlfriend was all about picking wildflowers and berries and eating it and like putting it into our meals because she's a chef as well. And I'm like, girl, I do not want to die. So I'd rather you learn how to identify them properly. So let's just go. So for Valentine's Day, we went and then we went again multiple times afterwards. And he introduced crickets. You remember Steve Irwin, right? Of course. Of course. I remember there was one episode on the Disney Channel when I was a kid. He plucked off this larva that it was like, I think the caterpillar or whatever it was, a worm moved moved out of its shell. So he plucked off the shell and he ate it and he's like, tastes just like sugar. And I was like, what is this sugar? And I was so excited. I always wanted to try it ever since I watched it when I was 10 years old. Finally had my dream come true. This forager teacher ended up letting us try crickets and all of that stuff. I've eaten crickets. I've had crickets in Oaxaca, Mexico. If you go to like the street food like market in Oaxaca, they will make you like basically a tortilla with crickets and it's really good. And also there's like a legend that if you eat the crickets, in, I don't actually know, this could be just a thing they said to me because I'm a gullible foreigner, but they were like, there's a legend that if you eat the crickets here, then you'll definitely one day come back to Oaxaca. And I was like, all right, I love it here. So I'm going to eat these crickets. Okay. Here's my issue with the tarantula. My friend Theo had tarantulas as pets. So I think of them as having personalities. Okay, that's super <laughs> sweet. Okay, okay. All right, here's the thing. I got attached to snails and I love, I don't know, do you like eating escargot? I've eaten them. It's not like my super favorite thing. Okay, well, it's always been my favorite thing and I freaking love it with that butter. Oh my Lord. Oh, so mm. good. Mm -hmm. The way the French do it, I was like, yes, please, some more. I'll eat like a tack with garlic butter on it, you know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is so fun. Oh my goodness. I'm telling you, I'm enjoying you so much. Seriously, I love how you're so down with anything. But talking about being attached, and I get what you mean about the tarantula. I thought I was like some big shot walking through hiking with my girlfriend in San Diego, and she's foraging for plants and berries. I then see snails resting on these plants that she's foraging. And I'm like, oh. Uh what if we forage our own because we're always eating all these meats and all of seafood and all this stuff, but we're making other people kill these animals for us. I feel like if we're willing to eat the animals, we should be able to, in a way, kind of honor the process and be able to do it ourselves and not just put it on others to do the effort for us. Like, you know how some people in different countries in America too, where they have their own chickens and then they, they mm -hmm. prepare their own chickens. It's such a clean process, but also you respect the food. You're not wasteful in the end because you know that the poor animal sacrificing their life, there's just something about it, just the whole process of respecting and honoring it, right? So I'm like, okay, let's start super small with the snail. So I collected a whole bag full and I was like, all right, let's just do this. 
So I was like watching one of the videos from, I think, Gordon Ramsay or whatever on YouTube on how to cleanse the snails from inside out. You let them eat carrots for three days. Yeah, like the whole deal. Just to make sure they're clean. Um, I got so attached to these snails. (laughs) I ended up getting so nauseous the day we ended up deciding to cook it for one of our anniversaries and I started getting very emotional I started tearing up Gordon Ramsay was like pop them into the fridge for about 10 minutes to put them in a coma state and then make sure the water is boiling so they don't feel the pain so what I did was I popped them in for 20 minutes in the fridge to make sure they're really comatose. Then I popped them in the freezer, hoping that would put them in a deeper coma state, then made sure that water was boiling like nobody's business. But when I threw it in the boiling water, I ended up getting so nauseous, I almost threw up. But I was like, okay, I came this far, I have to eat it. So I ended up eating it and I was like crying and eating at the same time. <laughs> so it was like, so I get it. I think that might be your tarantula experience. I think ever. that's my tarantula experience. So I understand why you might want to skip out on it. But anyway, I know I could go on for like, honestly, three hours with you. So I want to jump in to you and your storytelling journey. Why don't we just kick it off with how you first fell in love with storytelling? I know this is sometimes a tricky question, but your earliest memory of storytelling would be awesome. Okay. Earliest memory. I mean, I loved reading and I think that's probably true of most of the people that you talk to for a long time. And I remember that I was about 12 years old. I had just like read my way through Jane Austen's works and I was super in love with Pride and Prejudice. And my mom had given me a book of the juvenilia of Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte, which is like the stories they wrote when they were young. I think she was trying to like encourage me a little bit. And, you know, she wanted to kind of say like, everybody starts somewhere. And it was really fascinating. And there was this story that Jane Austen had written called The Beautiful Cassandra about her sister. It's hilarious. If you ever get a chance to check it out, it's really cute. And for reasons that I that made sense to me at the time, I couldn't express them to you now. It created in me like a profound desire to write something of my own. And so I started writing a book called The Beautiful Cassandra. And it was about, so it was like a little bit of an homage to Jane Austen's, but it had no resemblance to Jane Austen because it was set in like, I guess I would say, quotes, the past. Like I didn't know that much about different periods of history. So it's a mashup of different, you know, like the medieval time, Regency, Victorian time. I I don't think I knew what went where. And uh, it was about an innocent and beautiful young girl named Cassandra who escapes from a convent, which I also knew nothing about. I'm Jewish. I don't know anything about convents. And (laughs) she meets a handsome young man who has a really embarrassing name. I think it was Lord Jadrian Steele. That's kind of sexy, though. That's like an erotica right there. I, I'm, I'm digging <laughs> it, though. I am all of, I am open to this character. Yes, continue, please. Well, he is. He was very sexy, and they <laughs> fell madly in love. And then they had sexy times together, which, unfortunately, because I was twelve. I I can't say that it went into detail because I didn't really know what happened. So I knew that you would kiss and then some stuff would happen, but I didn't know what. So they kissed each other and then he died. Oh my God. What? I I didn't know what happened after that. So I was like in a panic. I killed him. But then I was super into that because then I got like six chapters of her being really sad that he was dead and screaming, no, Uh, while rose petals ran from the sky. And... I started distributing this to my friends and they really liked it, or at least they told me they really liked it. So like I would write this on my little ancient 
Mac classic and print it out and bring in a chapter to school and give it to my friends who are reading it. And so I got totally addicted to like writing a story that people were reading. So no matter the level of bad that it was, it was still the first storytelling. And so that went on for a really long time. Cassandra met many young men. They were all very <laughs> sexy and they would kiss and then they would die because I still didn't know what happened after that. So she just made her like a cut a swathe through like England and France, just killing off all of these hot young guys. And, but I, she had many adventures. It was really fun. I think it got to like a thousand pages before I gave up. And then I was sort of hooked on writing after that. I wrote all the time. Like I would make up stories in my head and I would write them out on my computer and I would show them to my friends. And sometimes my parents would sneak in and read them when I wasn't around because I forbid them to read them, but they did anyway. Your character that keeps killing off the dudes after all the sexy time <laughs> was the Black Widow. Is that the spider that kills off like yep. her dudes? Wait, all this correlation with spiders right now, all the spider talk. This is amazing. <laughs> but also what I loved about this, especially maybe because I'm at an age where passing the 30 threshold, my girlfriend hitting her mid 30s whether or not we want to have children and how, if we do, how to raise them. And what really caught my attention specifically was how encouraging your parents always were during your journey, especially in the beginning when you mentioned that your mom was basically kind of like lifting you up with her words, her encouragement to go for it. Is that something that was always very common when you were younger? I think my parents have always been really supportive of my writing. I think that definitely I was not someone who aced everything. I was sort of the typical, like, I'm really good at English, uh, history, humanities, I suck at science and math. So for me, I like really struggled with math and science through my whole like high school career. And uh, I think that while they were always super supportive, there comes a time I, where your parents become anxious. And I think a lot of people who are writers can probably relate to this. And they start saying things like writing's not a career. Yes. That's not like we want you to write. And of course you should write and you, you know, you makes you happy and you can write, but you're going to need something that's safe for you to do. So what I wound up doing was going into journalism because I think what I felt like was that was a safe thing for me to do and it was still writing and that I would be able to hopefully write on the side. So I think they were always really supportive, but I think they also had that fear that some parents have that like, well, what if she wants to be a writer, but it doesn't work out. And I think that that it's definitely one of the questions I get from kids a lot is, well, my parents say that being a writer isn't a career. And I'm like, well, that's not really true. You know, it's a complicated issue. I have a lot to say about it. But like, I think it's really common. It's so funny because I usually bring this up in conversation, especially with fellow Asian American storytellers. A lot of our parents... My personal story, my parents came from Asia. They met in New York City. Coming to America, for my parents' generation, it's very much like we need to see the actual dollar amounts grow in our savings, save up for a home, for a family, and better education for our children so that they don't have to go through the kind of hard work that we had to go through. For me, personally, it's very much another whole situation where it's like, oh, I want to be an actor. They're like, we did not come here for this to see you, quote unquote, throw away what they thought was the American dream, which is like, you know, being a lawyer, being a doctor, being a pharmacist. <laughs> As Jewish American, we have a lot of the same yes. cultural pressures that come from being 
not removed very much from the immigrant experience. Yes, and my very best friend in the world, Mickey Shaloa, he's Jewish. And I also was raised in a Jewish town, Great Neck. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Great Neck. Oh, yeah. We know all the Jewish towns. <laughs> my little sister grew up thinking she was Jewish and was pissed when she found out she was not. She was furious. I respect that. <laughs> But my best friend, Mickey, he always said, like, you know, he always felt the pressures from his family. Not only is it like the Asian culture, but he's like throwing the guilt on top of that. I'm like, oh, (laughs) shit. Okay, that's rough. But I get it because you guys also understand those pressures. It's like, again, from that upbringing of knowing how hard our parents, parents, generations, the grandparents had to suffer through. Uh, So you understand what I'm talking about. You know, it's like very much similar that a similar story and kind of like background story of our parents and our parents' parents. So they were in the end, your parents supportive for your choice in journalism. Like there was no argument there. There was no like, well, why not a pharmacist? Why not a, a business person? Right? I think that that may be an effect of being more removed from the immediate immigrant experience. Right. My parents weren't immigrants. My parents were the children of immigrants. Okay, so what did what are your parents then? Did they get the pressures? My dad went to was I mean this is going to sound hilarious. My dad was a rocket scientist, but then he actually left the space program and went into business school and got a business degree and he is still a he's a business teacher. He works as a professor. There's a long tradition of the for the women in my family of being teachers. They really wanted my mom to be a teacher. She wound up being a social worker. Incredible. So, and you know, it's not the exact like you know doctor lawyer thing, but they're both pretty safe professions. So my grandfather on my mother's side came to the U.S. as a baby with his parents and they wanted him to be a doctor or a lawyer. He went into the movie business. What? Yeah, he was a movie producer, not like a wildly successful movie producer, but he was a movie producer and wildly like creative guy. And he always hardcore supported me being a writer because he had wanted to be a writer and he was a poet and he had written screenplays. And I think that he had that sort of core immigrant, like I got to provide for my family. So he did a lot of like really practical work, but in his heart, he wanted to be a novelist. And so when I said I wanted to be a novelist, he was like, you do that. You have your dream because in so many ways, I think immigration is a dream deferred. You are putting off your dream to give your dream to your kids or your kids' kids. Yes. And he was like, always 100% like, you're going to write a novel. And I'm here for that. And in fact, my first book, City of Bones, is dedicated to my grandfather. It was published the year that he died. So he got to see the book come out. Can you remind me, is that grandpa from mom or dad's side? That's grandpa from my mom's side. Oh my God, Cassandra, how lucky you are to have have somebody like that, a cheerleader in your corner, in your family to root you on. And you know, everyone always is supposed to respect the eldest. Absolutely. You know, it's crazy. My grandpa on my mom's side as well, he's an artist and he supported the family painting and also teaching at University of Michigan Ann Arbor and NYU as a painter. And that is how I was allowed to become an actor finally, because he said to my mom and my dad, he stood up to them and he said, if you do not let my granddaughter pursue or at least give herself a shot at her God-given talent, I will fly her to LA, I will come to America and I will bring her myself. I love him. I mean, all that I have right now, I have to thank for my grandpa because he allowed me to do this with less stress and not get disowned from my parents. Do you know what I mean? So I do, I completely relate. I can't read my grandfather's mind, but I and but it's so interesting because I feel like 
it's there's such that pattern there. Like your grandfather wanted you to be able to pursue your art as an actor. And my grandfather wanted me to be able to pursue my art as a writer, because I think your grandfather was a really creative guy. My grandfather was a super creative guy. And I think that there's that knowledge that creative people have of what it means to have a creative desire and not be able to express it. And they don't want that for their grandchild. They want them to be able to have, to, you know, be able to, to try for their dream at least. Exactly. I think it's wonderful to have somebody like that in your life. I mean, I totally agree. I don't think I would be where I am if it wasn't for my grandfather, because I was a journalist for some years. I worked for the Hollywood Reporter in um, Los Angeles, reporting on the entertainment industry, which is something you also know about. And there came a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is not what I want to do. It's nothing wrong with being a journalist. It's just not for me. I have all these stories in my head I want to tell, and this isn't going to get them told. And so I'm going to move to New York, and I'm going to try to be a writer. And my parents were like, no, that's about, you know, you don't want to do that. You got to keep your job. And I was like, the problem is that my job is a job. It's a full-time job and I'm writing all day and I'm writing at home. I don't have time or space in my head to also create stories, to write novels. Like it was eating up my life and my time. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so my grandfather was like, you have to let her, basically the same thing. He's like, you have to let her do it. And now I will pay for her to go to New York if it won't help her. So it's exactly the same thing, although opposite coasts. Oh my gosh, Cassandra, I love your grandfather. I love this man. And I'm so sorry that he passed. I, But what an incredible way to dedicate and honor him, right? With your first book that you published for him, to him. And I, I'm so grateful that you had someone like that, that force in your life to allow that to happen. When you were moving to then New York, how funny that you mentioned it was truly opposite coasts. New York being so freaking expensive. Are we talking about Manhattan? Are we talking about Queens? No, at the time, Williamsburg, back before it was Williamsburg, like it was mostly a Russian and Polish neighborhood and not anywhere near as expensive as Manhattan. And I had, a, it was sort of, a fortuitous thing. I had just broken up with my boyfriend who was a terrible human being and I wanted to leave LA anyway so that I could avoid him. (laughs) And I had a friend of mine who was a musician and lived in Williamsburg and he, his roommate had just left and he was like, I have a spare room in my apartment. And I was like, okay, like I'm going to go, I'm going to go. I'm going to live in New York. I guess I thought I'll be close to publishing. I also thought there was something about making a clean start. And I knew that I wanted to write a book that was set in New York. And so it was those kind of three things that made me think I will go and I will move to New York be and be a writer. And yeah, Williamsburg was not, not at all like it is now. It's insane. Sometimes it's cheaper to live in the city than it is Williamsburg now. Oh, I know it's nuts. And I mean, when I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say like it was dirt cheap when I moved there, but it wasn't particularly expensive. I mean, I had a room in, if I say loft, it's going to sound fancy. It was not fancy. Um, you know, I paid about 600 bucks a month. What? Yeah. Okay. So now when it comes to affording the rent, how is it that were you able to then support? I know $600 a month. That's still tough, especially at the time where like, you know, the minimum wage was not so great. I'm sure. Right. It's not like, cause right now minimum wage is $15 per hour in New York, but everything has gone up. So back then I'm not sure how much it was. I think it was 11. Okay. There you go. 11 an hour. So how were you like, seriously, real talk, able to survive? So I had saved up some money because I had, and you will relate to this. I had really, really like wanted to travel. Like I was 
desperate yes. to travel and see some of the world. And so I had saved a good chunk of money to do that. And maybe $5,000. And I used that money to move instead and to live on when I first got to New York. But you are right that it's not going to take you that far in New York. So I was lucky to have had my journalism job. What I did was take work as a copy editor, like freelance work. So I would, and this is something that could be very useful for English majors to know. You can take a course in copy editing. It takes like two, three months maybe. And if you haven't had the copy editing experience on the job, and then you can, it's a, it's a useful skill. And it's also really useful when it comes to editing your own books. Yes. So what I did was take freelance copy editing work and that's how I supported myself. Brilliant. Was that a time where you had to put out your resume, like uh, mail it out? Well, you didn't have to mail it. They had email. I'm not that old. I mean, like, you know, because right now we have access to LinkedIn, we have access to upwork.com, but you can find writers and copy editors and then they set their own rates. But that's only, I think, within the last few years. I know that definitely when I was in college, there was no Upwork during my time. For yours, there was no online stuff like that to make it that convenient, right? What we had was Media Bistro, and I don't know if it still exists. Oh. Yeah, it was a huge thing at the time that was like a networking community for people in publishing. And so they had book publishing jobs, they had magazine jobs, editing jobs, and copy editing jobs. So I mostly used Media Bistro, and I would take freelance copy editing, and there are many, as you know, magazines located in New York or in New Jersey, and they desperately needed copy editors. And what I was sacrificing was benefits. You know, I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have medical insurance, not recommending that. But I knew that I didn't want a full-time job because once I had a full-time job, I would go right back to having the same problem that I had before. And one of the great things about copy editing was that often it needed to be done overnight. So like I wound up working for National Enquirer, The Examiner, The Weekly World News, Star Magazine, and those things they ship out in the morning. So you copy edit overnight. So I would copy edit during the night go home, work during the day. I don't have to say that's a great work-life balance, but I didn't work every single night. And so I would work through the night, come home at four, sleep a little bit, get up, work on City of Bones. Jeez, that is exhausting. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, I think, I don't know if I would still be able to do it. I'm like, I need to know what tea you were drinking, what coffee you were drinking, how the hell you were staying up. Oh, I drank so much coffee. Oh my And God. like, I think when you want something really badly, you know, you figure out, you, you make it happen. Were these the rates for your copy editing hours? Were they minimum pay or were they a little bit higher? You could set a higher rate. You can set a higher rate. Then that's why I was like, this is not a bad idea for English majors because in general, we already have an eye for what looks right, right. and for reading. And you're basically reading through, you're finding problems, you know, finding issues and you're correcting them. So it's, it's a good job for an English major. It hones your reading capabilities, which I think is good for your own work and your ability to revise. I think that that was $20 an hour, maybe something like that. So it's definitely better pay. When you were working on your first story idea, when did that idea hit you? I had been in New York. I was visiting my friend, the one with the apartment, right after I broke up with my boyfriend. I was like, I need a break. So I like go to New York for like a week. And I meet up with a friend of mine and she works at a tattoo parlor on St. Mark's. And so I like go down to see her and she is showing me um, her book of like her designs. And so we start talking about like some of the history of tattoos and 
how they cross cultures, how, you know, like I sort of inking your skin is something that exists all over the world. People have done it in different ways and believe that it had sort of these magic capabilities to protect them and to give them strength. And I suddenly like something clicked like down the back of my brain. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to create a world where tattoos really had these magic powers and they worked? So I kind of took that back to LA with me and I was thinking about it, thinking about it. And the idea of like this group of demon fighters who, you know, their magic worked with these sort of runic tattoos kind of started to take shape. It was very slowly, but it was sort of insistent and pushing at the back of my head as a story. And that was when I decided to move to New York because I knew, and I think it was probably because I got the inspiration while I was in New York, but also because there's an aspect of New York that has always felt very magical to me. And it has this very intense urban feel to it. Like in some ways, New York is the most city city in the US. And so I was like, I want that urban feeling and to kind of go back to the place where I got this idea and to walk around New York and to get inspiration from the streets of New York and to get ideas to set scenes. I'd been living in Los Angeles for years and years before that. And it's such a different kind of place. I mean, you and you've lived in New York, they have an opposite sensibility in a lot of ways. It was for me very much like getting away from my previous life and immersing myself in this new world that felt very magical. And it took me a long time to write City of Bones. I mean, I think it, I'm not going to say that it didn't. It was, I think that to write your first novel, you are teaching yourself to write a novel. Like you don't know how to do it yet, but it was great to be in New York for that. I really love to touch on emotional sides of writing as well. How was the writing process you know, nursing yourself through heartache. This question also applies for those who are suffering through a loss of a loved one, like a parent recently. You know, I've been surrounded by really close to your friends who just lost either a father or mother from a heart attack. I can't help but wonder how the hell they continue to go on doing what responsibility calls of them and what they still desire to do. I think especially when it comes to creativity, a lot of times where that creativity hasn't become something tangible yet, right? Yeah. I lead from my heart. I create from my heart. And if I'm empty and I'm grieving, I cannot imagine having anything else coming out of me. Throughout this time, being in a new city where it's exciting yet maybe also scary at the same time, and just going through this breakup with a horrible human being, like how you were able to still push through and create something that not yet was tangible just yet, but it took all the effort from you to make it happen. But how were you able to do that? Like amongst heartbreak? I mean, that's a super interesting question. And I totally understand the feeling that like with your when heartbreak comes, you can't work, you are grieving. And it's hard to think like, how do I find the joy of creativity when I am so full of sadness? And I think that for me, that was definitely an issue. I mean, this was a bad relationship. It was an abusive relationship. The guy was really controlling. I'm so sorry. Yeah. He didn't let me write. (gasps) Oh, hell no. He really hated the idea of me writing. And if he found like a printout of something I had written, he would tear it up. What? Yeah. Or, and so we were, it was a bad relationship. It was good that I got out of it. But I think when I first came to New York for a good portion of time, I was just startled that I had freedom to do what I wanted to do because it had been so long. 
Like I would wake up in the morning and I would think I could do, I could walk to the corner and I could get a soda. And that would be really weird because I'd been years since I'd been able to do anything without having to ask somebody else's permission. And so I think that whenever a relationship ends, even a bad relationship, you go through pain. But I was experiencing that pain and also experiencing all of these complicated feelings about what does it mean to have autonomy again? What does it mean to have freedom? What does it mean to have agency? If I sit down and write, is my writing going to be safe? I mean, this is really going to sound very strange, but you have to think about the time period that this, that, that I was in. I hadn't, I'd come to New York. I hadn't really, I hadn't written yet. I was still sort of like, I'm working, you know, I'm going to get there. And my, and I, my parents were kind of like, well, have you, have you written anything? And I was like, I'm working on it. I'm working up to it. Right. And I was sort of going through all this stuff, making notes and whatnot, but not really writing. So one morning I, the phone is ringing over and over again. I didn't want to get it because I didn't think it was for me. I assumed it was for my roommate. And I got up and I was like, I'm just going to go outside. So I throw on some clothes. I go outside. It's a beautiful September day. And I look up, the sky is black. And I was like, what is happening? So I go back inside and my roommate grabs me and he's like, the twin towers just fell down. And we didn't know what had happened. So we walk into Williamsburg and we're trying to, you know, there are police everywhere. Nobody has like a really clear idea of what occurred. Like people are saying planes went into the tower, but we assumed it was an accident. And then we're trying to figure out why both towers, why two planes would have hit both towers. And we're wandering around like totally lost. And uh, we see these people coming over the bridge and like, there are all these people they are coming over the bridge and they're covered in white powder, which is the cement from the towers falling. And so we start running to get water and stuff like that to give the people coming off the bridge and they're all in shell shock. But we start to get like a more of a clear picture of what happened. And there's nothing for us to do or anywhere for us to go. You know, we want to give blood. Is there anything we can do? No, nobody needs anything. We like go up on the roof of our building and we sit there. And like I sat on the roof all night and I couldn't call anyone or reach anyone. All the phone lines were down and paper starts floating in the air and all this paper like lands on me and I'm picking up the paper. I'm reading pieces of it. And I realize that these are the letters and the memos from the desks of the people in the building when it came down. And I mean, I'd only been in New York like two months or something like that. And I was in this, so I was in a state of like total shock, but I think that it shook me out of the state that I had been in before. It like, it, it made me feel like what was in my life was small and that the world is so much bigger. And I think this is a, a weird thing to express, but it made me feel like I had a duty to make my life matter. And so I went in like the day after, two days after that, and I started writing. And well, that that shook me. I mean, I can't say this is something that will happen to everybody, but everybody has their own things that happen in their lives, the way our lives intersect with the larger world. And so for me, that shook me out of the state that I had been in. And I, and it actually pushed me into a state of creativity because I had so much at that point, all the, you know, so many feelings and so much that was happening inside me. And the only way that I could actually handle it was to get it out and write it. It's one of those things that's really complicated because of course, in the larger sense, this is not about me. I didn't lose anyone in the towers. 
I had someone in the towers, my, one of my best friends, Barbara, and I was real terrified about what happened to her. And it was a day before I found out she had walked uh, home to upper Manhattan, holding her shoes, you know, and uh, I had that fear, but you know, I didn't lose someone and I feel so lucky for that, but it is one of those watershed moments in history that I think is one of those things where you know where you were when it happened. And, you know, we cannot help but be affected by what happens in the world around us. And it feels disrespectful to not be like, let me try to in some way channel at least this what I can do into something positive. So, yes, that's almost like a marker, right? In our timeline. From then on, did it completely change your perspective about things? I think it affected my working in the sense that from then on, I have usually been able to take really painful things and use them in my work in a way that I don't think I was able to before. I mean, my grandfather, who I was super close to, died in three years later. And that was a terrible moment in experience for me. But I was able to take that love that I felt for him and the loss and the pain and channel it into my writing. And I think that's something I have not had the experience, knock wood, since then of being so, even in really dark times, of not being able to write. I can usually take that, those feelings, even when they feel almost uncontrollable and kind of push them into my work. How do you know how to get your work in front of literary agents? Was that something where you did research online? I did do research online, but I was really also lucky. Okay, so I know you've talked to my friend Holly Black before. We all know her, respect for Holly, but... (laughs) (laughs) So it's a very weird story, but like basically I met her when her first book came out. My friend Emily had reviewed it for the Mythopoeic Society magazine and she gave it to me and she was like, you're going to love Tithe, it's awesome. It's got fairies in it and like Kirk Spock fan fiction. And I was like, does sound like a really interesting combination. And I read it and I, of course, loved it. And so Holly did her first ever signing, New York City, Books of Wonder. I show up and Holly, apparently no one gave her the memo that you're not supposed to like go out and hang out with maniacs that you meet at book signings. <laughs> so I was like, you want to come have some coffee, like have some hot chocolate? And she was like, OK. And I was like, great news. So we became friends. Like we talked, we liked all the same books. We liked all the same stuff. I told her the basic idea for City of Bones. She told me the parts that were stupid and that I should change. (laughs) (laughs) When it came time for me to query agents, she had already been through the process of querying agents. So she was able to explain to me how you do it. What? So she was your angel, basically. She was. Oh, I was wow. I was lucky. But I, you know, I know that not everybody is gonna have that experience of, you know, random of, of fortuitously meeting somebody who does the kind of work that you want to do. So I think that there are really valuable resources online, like agent query and whatnot. And I always tell people my sneak move is find a book that you think is like your book twin. What's what's a book that's like your book or that you think is kind of the same genre or someone who likes your book would like this book. Look in the acknowledgements. People always thank their agent. So then you're like, okay, write that down. The back of the book, they'll be like, you know, and I want to say thank you to my agent Smedley. He's the best, blah, blah, blah. And you write, then you query them and you can mention, you know, I really love this X book because agents love to hear that you like books that they represented. That's really helpful. And also, my gosh, if only we could all have an angel like Holly Black. That's insane. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I love your guys' friendship. You guys are truly family. The way she also spoke very highly of you in our conversation together. 
it's a rare thing to find friendships as you go on because everybody's so freaking busy. Everybody has their own stuff happening. So it's really nice when you come across a friendship where it's just truly genuine, where you both are really supporting each other. And will also tell you to your face, like, this is stupid. Kick this part out. Like, this is dumb. Oh, I love that part. Keep that stuff in there. It's hard to find a balance of that kind of friendship where not only do you have similar personalities or personalities that balance each other out, but that you truly root for each other's success and then bettering each other's work. How freaking blessed you both are for real. No, I agree. I feel super lucky. I can't remember who said this, but somebody was like, the real miracle of Jesus's life is that he had 12 close friends after he was 30. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, there you are. Can we print that and frame it, please, and send it to all our friends in our age group? I know, and it's so true. And I am very lucky to have the group of friends that I have. And I obviously feel blessed to have Holly in my life. Yeah, she is like a sister. I mean, we are super close. And there is so much that we have done together over the years. And absolutely, like, I she know, I wish her the best. She knows I wish her the best. She wishes me the best. I know that. I think it's so in a world where like we are always told that women's friendships are frangible, that women aren't there to support each other, that they want to tear each other down. It's so important to be reminded of the value of women friends in your lives and how much they give you and that it is untrue that women are competitive with each other. That's a patriarchal framing that is, I think, completely false. And that in fact, Holly and I are genuinely happy for each other when something is good, genuinely angry on the other person's behalf when something is bad. And we lift each other up. You know, we truly believe that like a rising tide lifts all boats. I've had Holly in my life for 15 years now. And, you know, being there for me with my writing, I've been there for her with her writing. We write together almost every day of our lives when we're working and have other close friends too. Just focusing on Holly, that's what we're talking about. But like, I think that that, I think that, you know, I'm like, uh, sorry, other friends. It's not like I don't also love you. Um, but like, and, and we see this sometimes too in, in YA that like, YA is often characterized, you know, often and by outsiders. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this in the press is like, oh, it's just this bunch of women fighting with each other. Right. And it's not, you know, I mean, I think I've seen the value of, of friendships between female writers and they are some of the most important relationships that we have. It's tough being a published author for the amount of time that you have been. And it's a very rare thing. And I hear different things from different authors, you know, whether it's upcoming authors or some longtime authors where the publishing industry is tough. It is tough. It is a business. So, I mean, for you, if there's anything you are comfortable sharing, like how you're able to stay sane, number one, and also making sure that you are taking care of yourself, because I hear that deadlines are freaking insane. Like, in, yeah, you see, you're chuckling, you, you know, like a mile away. So, I mean, there we go. So, like, if there's anything you can pass on, especially to more debut authors or authors who are going on to their second third book who are hoping for a a longevity similar to yours. If there's anything that you can share that you've learned along the way that will also help bring them some peace and some sanity and also awareness or maybe realizations that they might not be sure that they're like getting themselves into. 
Okay. I just want to say quickly that I actually pushed back the thing I had to do, which is just having Holly come over. So not that big of a deal. So we can talk, you know, as long as you want. So don't worry about it. Oh my God, Cassandra, thank you so much. We have a tradition that we had for ah, God, 10 years now that we exchange our Christmas gifts on, because I, I don't celebrate Christmas and I'm Jewish. Holly's a pagan. So we exchange our holiday gifts on the 1st of January. So she is actually just coming over to dump off the presents in, at my house so that we can open them later. You guys are so romantic. Hashtag best friend goals. It's sweet, but it's not desperately urgent. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you and Holly. Seriously. I will I will give her your love. She will appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so let me think. Look, you are totally right. Deadlines are very stressful. <laughs> and it is a stressful business. In the same way, I think that creating art is always stressful. I mean, I can't imagine it's less stressful if you're an actor. You are creating the product that you are selling. And in the end of the day, it's you alone. And that is can be stressful and scary. I guess in terms of real talk, I think there's a couple things and I'll, I'll say the slightly scarier ones first. You do need to think of this as a business going into it and thinking, you know, I'm an artist and therefore I don't need to pay attention to things like contracts. Not a good idea. I've seen a lot of people get really screwed up by not having looked at what their contracts say. Like, uh, you know, a publisher can put in, I have an option on this person's work for the next 10 years, thus preventing you from publishing a book for 10 years if you don't want to publish with them, things like that. You need to be aware of those, of that, of the rights you have, you know, legally and the options and those aspects of your career, you need to trust, you know, find an agent you can trust, trust, but verify. You need to learn how to read a contract so that you can read it yourself. And you can't just listening to your agent say, this contract is good. This contract is okay. To speak from personal experience, having been like, my agent says, this is okay. So it must be okay. It's not okay. Like you need to learn to read that language and know what it means before you sign off on anything. Um, you need to be aware of the people you bring in around you in your life in a professional capacity, your agent, your film agent, your foreign agents who sell your work in translation. Are they doing the best job for you? Are they doing stuff that's going to screw you up later? One thing that is super common. Okay. Say you have an agent and it's not working out. Don't feel that you are obligated to stay with that agent. It's pretty normal to you know, an agent-client relationship is a relationship. If you feel like you need to change, that is fine. At that juncture, you should be able to call other authors and talk to them about their agents and get some real talk. Like, so-and-so, this is your agent. You tell me all about them. And that oh, is one damn. thing that, yeah, is really useful is to be able to pull the knowledge that you have. Try to have transparency with other authors. The more that you guys tell each other about what's going on, the more that you'll know. Yes. Because a lot of the times your publisher will say things like, oh, don't worry about this. This seems totally normal about something that seems weird to you. You can find out that it is not totally normal. As always, trust but verify. Like you don't want to have an adversarial relationship with your publisher, but you want to, if something seems off, check up on it. Okay. Don't just believe that it's the normal thing just because they tell you it's the normal thing. In terms of deadlines, you have a little bit of control over your deadlines in terms of, again, with your contracts, look at the contract. What's the deadline? Make sure it's something reasonable that works for you, that you think you can hit those deadlines. There's always going to be stuff that comes and happens in your life 
actually this year, almost last year, I had to have a surgical procedure. So I had to push back a deadline. Oh my gosh. In most cases, your publisher will let that happen because they understand that things happen. Right. But they're, right. but most of the time, you know, that, that comes after 13 years of being with the same publisher. They know I hit my deadlines most of the time, you know, they know that I'm trustworthy. So if I need to push a deadline back because something happens in my life, okay. So try to hit your deadlines, but if there's something in your life and you need to take care of yourself, take care of yourself. Kind of your agent's job at that point to communicate with your publisher and say, Anne has this problem. Her mother's sick. She is not well. Something is going on. We're going to need to work out a new deadline. That is okay. Do not fall for the line that if you do not have a book out that year, your career is over. That is a a piece of business that YA in general and your publishers and sometimes even your agent will, will lay on you, which is like, you got to have a book out every year. You got to have two books out every year or your career is over. Don't let that be a thing that gets into your head. If a book comes out and doesn't do well, that's also not the end of your career. You're going to have another throw. You're going to have another book. So don't hang everything about your identity and your career on one book. And I think in terms of longevity of career, I mean, I've been lucky. You are right. This is an industry where people are lucky to make five years of still being in the industry and still publishing. And YA is, can be very trend-driven. So my feeling is always like, you write what you want to write. You don't look at the trends and don't feel like, oh, you know, dystopia is really hot right now. So what I need to do is drop everything and write a dystopian. Like you write what you love. You write what you feel like writing and what's important to you. And in terms of what I've observed through the years, those are the success stories. With the deadlines that you mentioned, if you're having a surgical procedure or something like that, like life happens, that's totally understandable. What if you are the kind of writer that's like, oh gosh, you know, you did your best. You you made sure to accommodate the schedule, schedule accordingly, but you know that you just need one more week or two more weeks to just hash out some more details that you didn't expect coming that that kind of like threw you for a loop but you know the story cannot end this way you cannot submit it this way what are your thoughts about that for example if you just need like a a two-week extension is that like an okay thing to ask for where your agent should be able to push for that no I think you're right to be putting the story first you want to to be the best that it can be I did this recently and Sorry, readers, it actually didn't affect the publication date. So we should be okay. But I was um, writing a book and I was like, you know what? I need another round of edits. Okay. You know, so, hey, editor, I want another round of edits. And she was like, it's fine. And I was like, no, I really feel like one more round of edits. You have to read it again. Give me another round of edits. And I want to do another round. Amazing. And it doesn't always happen. It was a feeling I had. And I think you trust your instincts on that. It doesn't happen to me with every book, but it's happened in the past. If you are in that situation, you really want to have a good relationship with your editor. Your editor is your person at your publisher. They know your books. They know you. They're your advocate. They're the ones talking about your books in sales meetings, acquisitions meetings. They're there to represent you. And they're also the person who is at your publisher caring how the book is. Because sorry, publisher, I hope you're not listening. A lot of times it's a widget. It's a book-shaped widget. And they're like, we're going to, you know, we got this book week. It's got a cover and we're going to sell it. And we, what we need to do is marketing and publicity and graphics and co-op and, you know, the business of publishing. The person there making sure the book is a good book is your editor. So you go to them and you say, I need another round of edits. I need another two weeks. Become familiar with your production schedule. And you can ask for that. 
So you're like a first time author and you want to see all of the steps that your book goes through before it is published, ask for your production schedule. I look at my production schedule and I'm like, what can be moved around here and what can be judged and what can be compressed and extended to get me the time that I need. So you, you become familiar with a production schedule and how it works. Then you can come in and say, okay, why don't we lap one week off copy edits, give me another week up front with my writing, and then we'll still be able to hit all the same deadlines. Wow. Holy shoes. You are amazing, Cassandra. They're like the skull and bone secrets of publishing. <laughs> Seriously. Thank you so much. And I'm like, how am I only now just asking these kind of questions? I think I wasn't aware to ask these kind of questions until it took years to actually learn about it. I'm going to end this off, wrap this up with rapid fire questions. A lightning round. Yes, lightning round. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what is the best advice you ever received? Best advice I ever received was when you're done with your book, read it out loud to someone. Usually for me, it's my husband because he, I can catch him and make him stay in place. <laughs> but when you read, when you read the book out loud, you will hear all the stuff in the book that sounds funny or off that you can't see on the page because you've seen it so many times. What are some small manageable steps you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? I would say, try to do what I call a writing sprint, which is like, you can slam on your headphones, you set yourself a time like 30 minutes, you spend that 30 minutes writing. Just write. Don't stop. Book that you love, your ultimate favorite, whether it's a craft book that helped you get through a creative block or your favorite book that you're like, holy shit, this is this is what writing is about. This inspired me. Oh man, that one's so hard. I have so many books that I love. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. Weirdly writing book. Um, it's actually, this is an essay by Raymond Chandler. It's called always outnumbered, always outgunned. And it's about writing mystery. It is about private eye fiction. And you would think that it does like, like, Oh, unless I'm going to write mystery, it's not relevant to me. But one of the things that I've definitely learned is that every genre is relevant to you. So I would recommend that. Proudest moment in your career. Oh man. Um, honestly, when my first book came out and hit the bestseller list, I was so excited. Like it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me in my entire life. And I called everybody I knew oh in gosh. the world. That's that's the one where you dedicated to your grandpa, right? Yeah, that was City of Bones. And it was my first book in the whole world. And it hit the bestseller list. And I was not expecting that at all. And I was totally thrilled. And I called my dad and I called my mom and I called everybody in the world until I ran out of minutes because that's how <laughs> phones used to work. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I used to use public phones all the time, by the way. I would run out of quarters. Let me tell you. Okay. That's amazing. All right. What's one thing that's really exciting you in your work right now? I'm working on my first adult book, which is called Sword Catcher, and it's set in a secondary world. So it's a world that I've completely made up, like, you know, Middle Earth. And I've never done anything like that before. All my other work has been contemporary fantasy that's set in our world, but with magic. And so making up a whole world has been an amazing experience and really fascinating and incredible. Are you allowed to share when everyone can expect to see that? Yes, um, they can expect to see it September 2021. They're not that far off. Yeah, that's not far off at all. Honestly, by the time we blink, it'll be there. I know. I'm so excited for you. Congratulations. And now last but final one, where can everyone find you to say hello online? I am at uh, CassandraClaire.tumblr.com. I have an Instagram, which is CassieClaire1. And I am on Twitter as CassandraClaire. That's my social media. I do not have the Facebook because I am allergic to the Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> 
then we'll make sure we stay away from those allergies. We'll hit you up on all the other sites, okay? And that wraps up my conversation with Cassandra Clare. Cassandra, thank you so much for your transparency and generosity in sharing your stories and words of wisdom with our listeners. I loved, loved, loved chatting with you, especially about the travels and also learning about you and how you became a storyteller. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Cassandra on Twitter at Cassie Claire or on Instagram at Cassie Claire One. To find all the resources and books mentioned in Cassandra's episode, along with the tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Cassandra's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash Cassandra-Claire. If you'd love more 88 Cups of Tea content that'll motivate you and warm your heart, be sure to read our articles and essays on 88cupsoftea.com. We are so proud to publish pieces by authors like Shannon Messenger, Sarah Faring, Annie Sullivan, Brittany Morris, Taylor K. Mejia, JC Cervantes, and many more. Be sure to read our most recent pieces written by Celia Perez and Myra Cuevas. And now, if you're looking for a super intimate space where you can meet fellow storytellers and experience what it's like to be a part of our community, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress and your huge wins for the week, along with recommendations for books and TV shows. And there's a whole ton of gifs in there. If you have a smile on your face right now, just from listening to that, that means you are our people and you need to come hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. To keep up with all things 88 cups of tea, this one is for you Instagram lovers. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at 88 cups of tea. We love posting fun Instagram stories, announcing new podcast episodes and featured articles and essays, along with favorite quotes from our content. And my favorite part about Instagram is our Instagram story takeovers from some of your favorite guests that have been on the show. So make sure to head over to Instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea to join in on the fun. Wishing you all a very, very, very happy new year and continued success and endless creativity and inspiration throughout the entire new year. And I will catch you next Thursday.